This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. And one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Catherine Ma, author of The Chinese Groove. Humor is so individual. It's so particular. I guess the only thing that helped me do it is to just try to stay loose and try to write in a voice that allows one access to to being funny to yourself. We'll be back with Catherine Ma after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. When you donate to First Draft, you're joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that is committed to sharing the insights and challenges of the writing life. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free to you. But it is not without expense to me, in hard costs and in labor. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. But all told, from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours an episode. There's also equipment and subscriptions to interview platforms and sound transcripts and editing software and hosting services for the sound and a website for the archive. And those things added up are not cheap. And all of this, this whole entire colossal effort takes a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition every week. And please understand, I am the entire show from start to finish. I am the editor, the interviewer, the reader, the researcher, the staff. Sometimes the staff doesn't perform as well as I'd like, but I am the only person performing. So why not consider supporting a woman with a dream to share literary wisdom from some of the world's best writers in a podcast platform? I would say with the number of episodes I've produced, which is actually more than in the archive, so more than 400, my track record is pretty stellar. And please beat the odds of having to listen to this message seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash first draft writers. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. 
Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with Catherine Ma, author of the novel The Year She Left Us, which was named a New York Times Editor's Choice and an NPR Great Read. Her short story collection, All That Work and Still No Boys, won the Iowa Short Fiction Award and was named a San Francisco Chronicle Notable Book and a L.A. Times Discoveries Book. She has twice been named a San Francisco Public Library Laureate. Her new novel is called The Chinese Groove, which centers on 18-year-old Shelley, who was born into a much-despised branch of the Zhang family in Yunnan Province, China. His father is grieving the death of his wife, Shelley's mother, and Shelley dreams of bigger things beyond his country's borders. With years of English lessons and a general command of the language, he sets out for a new life in San Francisco, where he is convinced his wealthy relatives will take him in. However, he discovers his rich uncle is really a distant cousin, and his belief that he can stay with him forever is reduced to one week before his relatives ask him to leave as they live in a small space and are grieving their own losses. As Shelley still pursues the American dream, he may discover more about his own Chinese heritage along with his will to survive and thrive. We began the discussion with Catherine Ma talking about both the title and the concept of the Chinese groove. Well, the, the book is about a young man whose Western nickname is Shelley, and he's 18 years old, and he is leaving his sad circumstances of his family in southwestern China and being sent to the United States to live with relatives in San Francisco. And Shelley has this notion of the Chinese groove. Uh, he has an idea actually imparted to him by his father. Uh, he has the idea that there's a kind of trust and a sort of communication channel that uh, runs between people in the Chinese diaspora, people that he doesn't know, but people perhaps he has a cultural or an ancestral connection with. And it, it's a kind of safety blanket for Shelley because he's embarking on something very uncertain and very new and rather scary because he, he has no money, he has no prospects, he doesn't know these relatives he's going to stay with, and he comforts himself on the way uh, on his journey, thinking, well, the Chinese groove is something that I can always fall back on. People will understand me without me having to explain myself very well. And right away, we as readers know that that's not necessarily going to be true. He makes a mistake on the airplane on his first, you know, within hours, he's already relying on this idea that he can communicate with others in a, in a sort of uh, quiet unspoken way and the reader is going uh-oh no that's not quite right how is this going to get this young man into trouble it's not an idea that I had before I began writing the book or at least I had not really articulated it to myself and Shelley loves language he loves verbal wordplay and that that phrase the Chinese groove came to me as I was writing him I was literally thinking of a groove of a kind of 
uh, groove in the ground, a kind of connection that might run from one person to another. And um, that's how the phrase came to me. Using it as a title came much, much, much later. I tried all sorts of different titles and finally decided, well, this is a concept that runs throughout the book. Shelley puts a lot of faith into it. It gets him into some trouble. And yet maybe there is some honesty to it as well. Maybe there's some truth behind it. And that's when it became the title of the of the novel. It is kind of like what it sounds like it is, that when you meet other people who are Chinese, you just kind of get in this groove together and that everything's safe and that life will be easier or laid out more for you. But that was not the case. Well, one of the themes that runs through the book is how much difficulty we have communicating with each other. This is a, he, when he arrives in the United States his American relatives are really in disarray. There's been a big fracture in the family. They are grieving a terrible loss. And um, he, doesn't, he doesn't really know what his place there could be or how to communicate with them. And they're not communicating with one another, husband, wife, son, father. They are having a lot of trouble communicating. So. The idea behind the Chinese groove, Shelley thinks, is we don't really need to speak to each other, frankly, or candidly or directly. There's a way that we we will be able to understand one another just because we share familial, ancestral, cultural ties. And in the course of the book, he puts that to the test, as do the other members of the family. Yeah. And I think what's really important to know, too, about Shelley is that he studied English and he spoke it very well. You know, he wasn't an, a new immigrant that didn't speak it at all. He could speak it. And and when you're talking about they have problems communicating, it's like the, on that deeper level. Like, how do we express our feelings? How do we really say what's going on? And for him, his background was that he was kind of more of a castaway from the bigger family of origin in China. And his mother died and his father kind of went into this funk and never came out. And so he couldn't really talk to his father and he couldn't really communicate or, or feel like he fit into the rest of his family either. Yeah, he does have English language skills. He comes to the United States actually to study, to become more proficient in English. He enrolls in an English language program at San Francisco City College. But he has had um, quite a bit of English instruction in his schooling in China. So he has some he has some English. And one of the things I did not want to do is, you know, have him stumbling around as an immigrant, uh, unable to express himself. Um, I wanted to get beyond that and, and look at communication in a maybe in a more nuanced way. Um, but he just he loves language. And he had a teacher in China who um was a native English speaker. She's a British, and um, he she loves language as well. Uh, I had this idea in my mind that her father was actually a linguist, and she and Shelley, although we don't see a lot of their relationship, 
in, in, in my mind, they really connected over their love of language and wordplay. And he invents all sorts of phraseology and words and patterns of speech for himself. And that voice came to me very early when I started writing the book. Um, I, I just f- fell into it easily. And it, it was tremendous fun to write. Uh, one of the things I, when I started out to write the book, I thought, I want to challenge myself technically. This is my second novel. This is my third book. And I thought, I want to try to do something technically that I haven't done before. And I decided that what it was going to be was I was going to have one single narrator, first person narrator for the entire novel. My previous novel had alternating narrators. So I thought, well, I haven't done that before. Stay in one person's voice. It turns out it's really difficult. It's really difficult to write an entire novel in in the first person Um, because every scene, you you have to figure out some way to tell, to dramatize scenes, uh, depict scenes where the narrator is not in the room, for example, and to sustain that voice for, for you know, for the entire novel. It, it, it was a technical challenge. I was laughing to myself midway through thinking, well, you wanted to challenge yourself. Was that really such a good idea? Because it's actually rather difficult. But finding that voice, following his love of language, and um, playing with it myself was really great fun. Is there anything that you learned along the way that you would tell other writers? I would say that you uh, do have to be creative in the way you tell the story. It depends on what, what, what kind of story you're telling. But in my case, I wanted to tell a story with multiple subplots this book is very precisely plotted. There's a main through line, but there are also a variety of other things going on. And so in, in that way, I knew that I was not going to be able to have Shelley, the narrator, be in every single scene and be part of every single conversation. So I found fun ways um, to depict action or to describe what other people were doing. Of course, there's the age-old trick of having your first-person narrator eavesdrop. That's something that we see often. I, I did things like that. I borrowed devices that other people have used. I used newspaper article. I used uh, uh, the, the storytelling techniques. I used the, the recounting of a fable partway through the book. I used a... Um, an imagined conversation between Shelley and an imaginary character. And so I think the things I learned is there are ways to vary the storytelling, even when you're staying in the voice of a single first-person narrator. Can we talk a little bit about Shelley and his father not being part of the general bigger family. I, I don't know exactly how do you pronounce it in Chinese. I think it's Lao Jia. The Lao Jia, that's the family compound, the family home. One of the beginnings of this novel um, was a trip that I took to China with my parents in um, a number of years ago. It was the first time that my father was 
permitted to return to his hometown. He lived in an area of China that even after China reopened to the West, his the area where he was from had not yet been open to Westerners because it was very close to the border uh, with Vietnam. But by the time we went, this my father was actually able to finally return to the hometown that he had left as a very young man when he was in his 20s. And it was, as you can imagine, a really moving experience. I was very fortunate to be able to go with them. My brother went as well. And um, at one point, the relatives there, my father still had many nieces and nephews living in this town. They hosted us for this beautiful meal, this family meal at the old family compound, the old family home. No one lived in the home anymore. It was in complete disrepair, but they, they still were allowed to gather in the courtyard and they put on this big meal for us. And there was one gentleman at the meal who was sitting at the table with my parents. Of course, my parents were sort of guests of honor. So anyone sitting at their table was pretty much of their generation. And I kept noticing this one guy and no one would talk to him. Everyone was completely ignoring him. He was there. He was part of the crowd. He was smiling. He was laughing. But it was almost like he was invisible to the rest of the family. And later I asked my father, who was that man? And my father got very stern with me and said, he's the black sheep of the family. And he wouldn't say more. I never learned what the story was who that man was, but it intrigued me, this idea that you could both be within the family, but somehow be invisible to the rest of the family. And that is sort of where I started the idea of Shelley and his father. They're part of a very large and um, functional family in their hometown, but they are looked down upon by the rest of the family. And that has to do in Shelley's story, um, I gave them a family background that was that was different from my father's. But um, I, that's where I began this idea that you could both be in a family, but somehow excommunicated by from the family, even though you are physically present. That's amazing, and you never found out from your dad the story. No, he he didn't want to. He didn't want to tell the story. Perhaps he didn't know. Perhaps he didn't know. I I don't know. Uh, my mother did tell me that this man was the son of a concubine wife. So apparently, my either my grandfather or my great grandfather. It was a little unclear to me. Had a second wife or perhaps a third wife, which in those days was not unusual. This is, we're talking about the early part of the 20th century. So this man descended from a slightly different line of the family than my father and some of his siblings. I dramatized that in the book. I, I sort of riffed off of that. It's not accurate to, to my father's situation, but, um, or not fully accurate, but I, I, I just borrowed that and went from there. Yeah, I mean, when he gets to America to visit his cousin, 
it turns out that they're not as closely related as they think. And he has these big dreams. You know, he's going to come there. live in San Francisco. They're wealthy. He's going to have his own room. Everything's going to be great. Like you said, he doesn't have money. But basically, they're like, yeah, you can stay with us for a week. And as you said, they were in the midst of a lot of mourning and sadness. Yeah, he gets there and he has outsized expectations of what they're going to do from him. He keep, he refers to, at one point, to the bank of uncle. He thinks his uncle is going to bankroll him. And, you know, this, none of this turns out to be true. And they do, in fact, evict him after a short stay. They said, you know, you can't live here. And so another theme of the book is housing and home. Now, housing is a really big issue in contemporary San Francisco. Um, and I should say that the novel is is set in contemporary San Francisco. And I I I I took advantage of Shelley's situation to um illustrate a variety of different housing situations that he goes through. He he's cycling through all these different places. He's desperate for a place to live. He has no shelter. So he has to move from sleeping on the floor of a friend's apartment to um, going to a boarding house to trying to sleep in the back of the restaurant where he's working. And ultimately, he ends up unhoused and sleeping in Golden Gate Park. Uh, and then from there, he you know, makes, makes his way in a, in a slightly more stable situation, which I, I won't I won't spoil for the readers, but um, it, it gave me an opportunity to think about all the different kinds of housing that people live in and what it means to have housing and home. He talks about once he finally does get a stable place to live, he talks about how important it is to have a home in order to try to fulfill your ambitions and desires. And um you know, it, it was it was interesting, but I it also led me to do a lot of research about housing and um, and earlier times in San Francisco because he's living with these relatives who began. Um, they are descended from uh, immigrants from um, more from the Pearl River River Delta, where a lot of earlier immigrants in San Francisco and in California on the West Coast came from, and um, they had lived in Chinatown, and they made the migration to another neighborhood in San Francisco where they're living now. And um, I, I interestingly, I found out that in the neighborhood where they lived, there were uh, covenants and restrictions that, that did not allow homeowners to sell their homes to uh, people of color, um, to Jews, uh, there were there were restricted categories, and um, it's something that you know eventually got outlawed at, at, at the federal level. But a lot of um, deeds and and uh, you know housing restrictions still remained on the books for a long time in this city and and elsewhere. So it it gave me a chance to sort of explore some of those issues around housing and housing discrimination. I don't know how long you've lived in San Francisco. I'd love to know, but I'm wondering if what it was like for you to write about a Chinese immigrant seeing your city for the first time. And if you looked through it, maybe even with dual eyes, one is what it would be like to be 
a Chinese immigrant and how that maybe interplayed with your Chinese identity. And then also just seeing the city anew. I have lived in San Francisco since my early 20s, so quite a number of, you know, several decades now. Um, And I I grew up in Pennsylvania. I am the child of two immigrants from China, my mother and my father. They they did not come together. They were both students living in the United States that came shortly after World War II. And um, uh, I have have had a very different path than the people who I depict in the novel. But I think uh, the children of immigrants such as myself, we still feel that journey that our parents took. We really feel it intensely, even though I was born in Pennsylvania and grew up outside of Philadelphia. Um, it, it, it doesn't, it, it's never felt that far away to me, that experience of migration, displacement, uh, separation, because in both my father's and my mother's cases, they were separated from their family in their early 20s. And then, you know, the great silent era when no one could communicate between China and the U.S. And so their relatives, their family members who were who were in, left in China when when they departed, there are untold an untold number of stories about about those um, those divergent lives. Um, and so, you know, I do bring a, a the, I think that something of my my history and my background, I bring that sensibility to imagining the life of an immigrant. But Shelley, he's he's a he's an immigrant in today's uh, world, and that is a very different kind of experience, I think, in some ways than what my parents experienced in the 1940s. You're right about duality. I both was was um, trying to draw on my experiences uh, as the child of immigrants and also imagine a contemporary experience. As far as seeing San Francisco through fresh eyes, I mean, San Francisco is a very dynamic city. It's always changing. It's changed. It has changed dramatically in the past three years of the pandemic. Um, And so I'm always trying to bring a kind of, you know, newness and freshness to the way I look look at my my hometown. it's a it's a marvelous place, but it's a deeply flawed place. And so there's a lot to think about and talk about. His family, his uncle that he goes to see, um, is married to a Jewish woman. So it's Ted and Aviva. And they've suffered a loss recently. And so part of them, I think, of not wanting him around is just they're so deep in their grief. They also are not wealthy. They're kind of just managing to get by. They have this asset in a house and they live next door to Ted's father, Henry. I'm just curious about the sort of the geography of grief in this book. I don't know if you want to say why they were having so much grief, but how grief undulates in their life and and how you wrote about that and what was interesting about it. I'll say that each one of these main characters, Shelley, his aunt Aviva, his uncle Ted, and um, Ted's father, Henry, they've all suffered a very grievous loss, the death of a family member. 
that is a common a common bond between them but because they are not able to express their grief and their profound loss barely to themselves let alone to one another they don't meet on that common ground for for most of the book i think that loss does not resolve it stays with with us for a long long time I don't know that a a loss as deep as the people in this book have suffered, the losses they've suffered. I don't know that it ever is fully repaired, Um, but one learns how to live with it or not. And that's one of the questions of the book. Um, Are they going to learn how to live with the loss? How did they move on? Shelley's father is deep in depression because of the loss. As we've already said, his his mother died when Shelley was young. And his father hasn't ever really moved on from that. And, um, you know, I, I, it, the book, it, it, I, it has a real sadness at the heart of it. I have a good friend who's in my reading group, and he says, the best, the best novels are all sad, are all sad books. <laughs> I have to agree that there, there is something about a sadness at the core of a book that really speaks to me as a reader. And what I tried to do in this book was to, to have the story um, resonate on multiple levels, both as a humorous tale, as a kind of tale of flight and adventure and, um, and uh, beginnings, but also throughout the book runs this kind of core sadness. And I, I was so lucky to find an editor uh, who understood that. I, I work with the wonderful editor, Dan Lopez, um, at Counterpoint Press, and he understood right from the start that I really wanted to have a wide tonal range in the book. And he allowed me that, to both have very joyous, buoyant moments in the book, to use plenty of humor, to enjoy the language and the wordplay, but have this um, this river of sadness running beneath their feet throughout the story. And that's part of what pulls the story along. We'll be right back to this interview after some words about one of the sponsors of this episode. Have you ever heard of Scribophile? It's an online community where writers from beginners to published professionals can submit work and get feedback from readers around the world. Published authors say the community of readers helps them hone their craft and become better storytellers. You can also learn about specific writing topics with Scribophile's new array of video-based writing classes in fiction and nonfiction. Best-selling author L.S. Hawker is leading a class on writing page-turning thrillers, and Karen Albright-Lynn, award-winning novelist and editor, shares instruction on mastering the art of subtext. Those are just two of many classes offered this spring on topics from novel writing to character development. Classes run from two to six weeks and feature live face-to-face video, a unique personal format among the variety of writing classes offered on the web. Classes feature enough time for you to ask questions and have meaningful discussions on craft. Learn more about Scribophile's online reading and writing community and all the class offerings at scribophile.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-O-P-H-I-L-E dot com. And now back to the interview. One of the things that you're also looking at 
is in this Chinese community in Sunset, which you get the idea is a not totally insular. It's not like they all know each other, but they're kind of rooting for one another when the time is right. And you have kind of a political scandal in there. So with um, Shelley's family, his, I guess you could call him his great uncle, Henry, is a fan of their, like, city councilman. And he is, he grew up with Ted, um, his uncle. He's like a neighborhood boy gone good. But there's also something nefarious going on there. And you're really kind of looking at how how hard it is sometimes to see when things aren't right, when it's like one of your people. Oh, I like that. I love that interpretation. I, I hadn't really thought about it in quite that way. That's a, that's actually a marvelous reading of it. There's a large neighborhood on the western side of San Francisco that is called the Sunset District. It's on the south side of Golden Gate Park, and it, it goes all the way out to the ocean. And um, it's kind of a forgotten quarter of San Francisco, or it, it was for many years. I don't live in that district, but I, I love the district. And I realized recently, I think one of the reasons I love it so much is because um, I'm a kid who come, came from Levittown, Pennsylvania. My parents, when they first um, settled in the United States, one of the first places they lived was in Levittown, Pennsylvania. There is a Levittown in, there, Levittown in Pennsylvania as well as New York. But the idea that there's this very uh, affordable modest housing, you know, house after house after house, they all look very similar. Um, and and uh, at one time, they were very affordable. People, people, middle class folks could go in there and buy a home and have their own home and raise their, raise their kids. Uh, my parents actually did not own a home in Levittown, but they were able to rent a home in Levittown, Pennsylvania. And that's the home that they brought me home to after I was born. And the Sunset District is one of those areas of San Francisco that has this very, um, it has many homes that are quite modest, that look very similar to each other. There's nothing particularly uh, uh, exciting about the, the way the streets look. It's laid out in the long red, and it has it's deep in the fog. It's deep, deep in the San Francisco fog. So it's not one of the favored neighborhoods of my city. But yet it is a neighborhood where many people were able to uh, afford a home and raise a family. And it is a neighborhood where... Um, there was a wave of migration, if you will, from Chinatown to this area of San Francisco by Chinese immigrants who eventually came out. And as I said, in the beginning, they were not they were kept out of the Sunset District. They were not allowed to buy homes there. But eventually, um, when the laws changed, they did begin to buy homes there. And and it was a, it's a neighbor. It's a district where there are all sorts of different racial and ethnic people of different racial and ethnic backgrounds because those homes became affordable to many communities. And you're right, there is a whole political subplot in the book. And one of these local kids, a Chinese kid who grew up in the Sunset District, he becomes a successful local politician. And um, 
and we see his rise and then we see him get into trouble. And I, I just love what you said, that maybe the people who were so proud of him, who were close to him, um, they really couldn't see him for who he was. And I just I just really wanted to have, you know, a Chinese politician behaving badly. We, <laughs> we've, seen, we've seen it in San Francisco. We, we've seen it elsewhere. But um, that feels a little... Uh, a little risky, I suppose, to tell a to tell a bad story about someone from my own community. But um, you always need your Iago in every in every book, and he's one of mine. Tell me more about the risky part about feeling risky. In some ways, there's a there's a challenge. Um, I think for any writer of color or writer from a community that has been underrepresented. Um, in literature and in the arts, um, you feel somewhat responsible to the community and you feel like, oh, if I tell a story, will it be taken as somehow a pronouncement on the state of affairs in my community or, you know, as some sort of truth? No, it's fiction. It's 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 a novel. It's a made up story, and it has to have all of the messiness that that life in any community or any uh, situation has. And that's one of the pleasures of writing a novel. You can make it as messy as you want, um, but. Uh, my idea of uh, of, a, of, a, of an interesting book is you start with the mess and then you find some way to shape it um, through theme, through characterization, through motif, through language into something that helps us understand uh, some, some part of our humanity. Um, so that's what I tried to do in this book, but I did not allow myself to be uh, silenced by this sense of responsibility to only depict the Chinese American community in the best possible light. Where's the fun in that? That's not really the job of the novelist. Yeah, I really understand that though. When you're dealing with like so many barriers and moments of hate and systemic racism from the outside world, I could see how that would cause you to wrestle. You know, you asked about the title earlier, um, and I, I, I had a working title in my in my head for a long time, which um, I knew was not ultimately going to be the title. It was just sort of my guiding light, my 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 north star. I was writing toward that title, and then um, and then when it came time to title the book, um, I, I did think of the Chinese groove because it's this made up Shelleyism. It's a kind of fun phrase, and it and it it, it, it it ties the book together thematically, but I did hesitate. I thought, well, maybe I, I shouldn't put the word Chinese in the title. I mean, this is during a time of anti-Asian feeling. Um, it, 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 I felt like, oh, this is this, this may not serve the book well. And then I decided, no, I'm going to own it. I'm going to just put it, put it out there. I, this is an important concept behind the book it's very fun and just go for it Catherine so I did and I'm glad I did but I'm sorry to say I did have that conversation with myself of asking is this a good idea to use the word Chinese right 
right in right on the cover of the book. But heck, anybody who meets me and sees the last name Ma on the cover of the book as well uh, knows that I I'm uh, I come from a Chinese background. So I just decided to go for it. In the beginning, we talked about the family compound, the Lao Jia, and then the end there's some some characters who are interested in a intentional community slash kibbutz type of um living arrangement that is very enticing to them so i wanted to ask you if you saw the parallels between the two communities and what was really interesting to you about the intentional community and the way people live that way yeah, I, I, as I was saying, I was thinking of, about how do we choose to live, um, when, when you know, what under what circumstances would we want to live with family members? What is it like to live alone versus living um, in a in an intentional community or living as part of a large family compound? And I did, I did. There is a sort of full circle of 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 questions and and um, contemplations about those about those issues, I did see the parallel. Um, there are a number of parallels throughout the book. There's a parallel between Shelley and his relationship with his father, and then his uncle Ted and Ted's relationship with his father Henry. Um, there are ways in which these 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 pairs sort of chime against one another and. I, I found that same thing to be true with the idea of what is it what does it mean to live in a group setting? What does it mean to live with your family of birth versus your chosen family? Like as you say, in the intentional community, where the um, another set of characters in the in the book go and choose to live in a sort of modern day kibbutz in in um, Los Angeles, uh, in a, you know, more uh, rural area of LA County. Oh my God, it's so beautiful down there. I went, I went down on an adventure trip, you know, an exploratory trip, talked to a variety of friends who live in Los Angeles about where could I locate a kibbutz. And then my husband and I took a driving trip and, oh, it's just gorgeous. This area of, um, LA County. I mean, it's still in the Los Angeles County, within the boundaries of Los Angeles County, but it's so different from other parts of LA and not that far from Burbank, not that far from Malibu. Um, it's really marvelous. Um, and that was a really fun thing to do to try to imagine an intentional community that could have the land, have the space, and have the privacy in a way, the quiet. And the, the solitude to imagine, envision a life for themselves that is both of the modern world, but separate from the modern world. Is there anything else about the book you want to talk about that we didn't? I guess I'll say that um, it, it, it's always tricky to, to try to write humor. I mean, what I find funny, other people might not find funny. And one of the gratifying things about the early reviews, um, pre-publication reviews, have been people saying, "Oh, this is a very funny book," uh, because that that's that is that's tough. And you asked me earlier, would you have any advice for other people trying to write from a first-person 
point of view, I, I have no advice for anybody on the issue of humor. Humor is so individual. It's so particular. I guess the only thing that um, helped me do it is to just try to stay loose and try to write in a voice that allows one access to, to being funny to yourself. And you hope that somebody else will you know, meet you on that plane, but it is a very, it is a very, uh, it's very individualized and it's very subjective. And I think it's kind of terrifying to try to write, to try to write funny. Um, But, you know, if you, if you're, if you've inhabited uh, a a character who, who you find delightful and amusing, or maybe in another kind of humor, a more darker humor, whom you find sardonic and smart or sardonic and, and um, and uh, perceptive. If you can get into that mindset, you probably have a better way of channeling their particular brand of humor. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes, I'm going to read from an essay by the writer Lynn Freed. The essay is called Sex with the Servants, and it's um, published in her marvelous collection of essays called Reading, Writing, and Leaving Home. Four years before my father died, and long before he fell ill, I wrote his funeral into my third novel. When the galleys came out, he and my mother happened to be staying with me in California, and he offered to vet them for me. Well, I accepted gladly. My father was a detail man. Every letter from him was appended by a column of spelling errors I had committed in my own letter entitled yours. These were matched with another of his own entitled correct. He sat at the dining room table, turning the pages of my galleys, jotting down the corrections with care. And then towards the end, he suddenly looked up with a very familiar expression of alarm. Didn't give me much of a funeral, did you, he said. In fact, as I was writing that funeral, it did not occur to me to consider my father's extreme hypochondria. The way life in the family would come to a halt if he sustained a paper cut on his finger, gentian violet, a carefully chosen plaster, and then the special chamois finger cots he kept for just such occasions, one for day, one for evening. I didn't think of that at all. But even if I had, I would still have written that death, that funeral, weeping away as I did. So, um, I, I chose this um, because I have such admiration for Lynn Freed as a as a writer. <clears throat> when I um, when I first began writing, I had um, made a huge decision to leave my previous occupation and and try to learn how to become a writer. And I took a writing workshop with Lynn, and she was exactly the teacher that I needed in that moment. She was um, she was extremely precise. She was very um, uncompromising, and she was she was very clear about what the work demands of one. And uh, I just read everything that she wrote: her novels, her short stories, her essays, her travel pieces. Uh, I love all of it. Um, but one of the things that I really look to her—I can't say that I've emulated it because I think it's very hard to do. 
but I've I've seen it in her is she she just she loves her family fiercely. She's just loyal to the bone, loyal to her family. But at the same time, she writes about family, both in her fiction and her nonfiction. Um, and she's uh, she inevitably draws on her own experiences. And she's very brave and very honest in writing about her family. And I find that hard to do. Um, I love the I love my family. I love writing about families. Um, but I feel in the same way we were talking about writing about the Chinese American community, uh, I struggle with it because I think um, I fear that it, you know, exposes all of us in my family to scrutiny. It it's difficult for me. And I think she does it extremely bravely and extremely well. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yes, I'm going to read from uh, close to the beginning of my novel. This is in Shelley's voice. He's an 18-year-old young man from uh, Yunnan province, China. The relatives hated me for ancestor reasons, which you might think unfair, but I well understood because I was born into the despised branch of the family. My great-grandfather, a handsome devil, was known to all as the wayward son of his father's third wife, a gambler and an opium addict. The son, not the wife, though who knows, maybe the third wife ate the flower too. In the photo my father has of her, she's really skinny. My father knew how tough it was to be the bastard son of the bastard son of a bastard. Okay, maybe not that many bastards and technically untrue. Third wives were all the rage in the ancient days of yore to those with brains and money. But as far as the aunties were concerned, father and I were lodged on the lowest rung of the family ladder and nothing we could do would lift us from the mud. From where I stood in proud good Joe, tin capital of China, but lousy with kicking cousins, I couldn't quit soon enough. I'd hold father in a warm embrace and promise to make him proud. Then I'd soar straight to uncle's house where my new family was waiting. So um, I chose that passage because it, it's both, um, it's something that I, I think went well, and it was also very difficult to write. I say, I mentioned earlier that Shelley's voice came to me very easily, and I think that passage um, gives you a little flavor of what his, his voice is. Um, and I, 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 I wanted it to just really flow, and, and I, I wanted it to... Um, roll on pretty pretty easily in the same way that the voice came to me uh, when I first began writing the book. But I I find beginnings of novels very very interesting to write and very tricky to write because the beginning of a book has to do so many things. Um, you have to supply a lot of information to the reader, but you also have to be patient and um, dole it out over the over a series of pages. You want to give your reader time to comprehend what you're saying, to absorb it, to remember it, to be able to draw on it later. The, the beginning of a book, you, you know, you're, you're framing the story, you're setting the tone of the story, you're, you're setting the pacing. There's that famous notion that the beginning of a book teaches the reader how to read the book. I agree with that. I think that um, you're kind of teeing it up. 
and also in a book that's um, that has multiple plot lines as this novel does, um, you need to set the rose early. You know, I'm out there with the hoe. I'm planting the rose pretty early. I'm putting the seeds in the ground pretty early for everything else to come. So I spend a lot of time um, working on the beginnings of books to both capture the reader's attention and get the get the ball rolling, but not. It's 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 really important, I think, not to give them too much information all at once. Like to pace yourself and trust that the reader is going to hold on and doesn't need answers, doesn't need all the answers of how this, who's that person and how's that person related to such and such and where exactly are we and what you know. If if you're doing your job, the reader will stay with you uh, long enough and and maybe um, will absorb the information better if you if you parse it out over, over, over a number of pages. Where do you write? Well, that's changed over time. Uh, when I first began writing, I, um, I had young children at home. And so I got an office outside the home. I, I was really terrified that I would just get swallowed up by, <laughs> by the life of just, you know, just being a mother. I, I, um, I thought I've, I've got to have an office outside the home or I'm just, you know, there's always going to be another load of laundry that needed to be switched from the washer to the dryer. Um, but now my children are grown and I write in a bedroom in my home that used to be occupied by one of my daughters who is a writer. And she gave me a beautiful box that she made for me that's covered in photographs by the photographer Lee Friedlander of people at work. And it sits right above my desk and I love looking at it and just feeling that energy of those people and you know, giving myself over to getting lost in the work. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I go for a walk. Um, there are lots of wonderful places to walk um, in the city or in the summertime, if it's warm, um, I go for a swim. I don't know, I spend so much time in my head that I, I think it's good to be reminded that my head is attached to other parts of me. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I am pretty reluctant to show my work. I do not show it at early stages or even really at middle stages. The ideas the characterizations there it's too tentative then i i don't think it's so strong enough yet to to stand up to to questions and and to you know to analysis yet but when it's when i have a downline draft then i do show it to a group of writers a, a, a few years ago a group of of writing writing friends we started a group that we call the wbg the whole book group and our commitment to each other is that um, we will read the entire manuscript of a book and then and we will read it pretty promptly. So everyone is currently working on books. And when someone has a full manuscript and they, they're ready to share, they send it to the rest of us and we all try to read it within a few weeks. And then we meet and we we talk about it. I, I cannot uh, really workshop a novel 25 pages at a time. That doesn't work for me. Um, so the whole book group is my uh, 
salvation. It's really been a godsend. It's been a wonderful experience. How have you dealt with rejection? Rejection is part of the job. It hurts. It's hard to be rejected. Um, I think there's kind of, I think there's different different kinds of rejections. Um, one kind of rejection is can be helpful. Like maybe maybe a, a, a book has gotten rejected or a piece has gotten rejected and and you realize, oh, I haven't finished this yet or I haven't I haven't really brought it close enough to my vision for it that it's connecting with someone. Um, not because of any comments that person make. Most rejections don't come with any useful comments, but just the fact that it, it's come back to me, no, we're not interested. That can be helpful because it can spur me to realize, oh, you know, I, I, this piece is not far enough along yet. But then there's another kind of rejection that I think of as a sort of neutral, neutral rejection. Um, if I can get my ego to sort of stand aside. It's not particularly helpful, but it's not hurtful either. That maybe it's a sort of ship's passing in the night. This particularly, I think, happens when the whole book is done and I feel that it's really in good shape and, you know, it's on submission and then you get no's and um, you just haven't found the right reader for it yet. You know, maybe somebody, maybe it's the humor, as I said, or maybe it's the subject or you don't have any idea why someone has said no. But I feel that if I have brought the book as close to my vision for it as I'm capable of doing at that time. And if I have shown it to my WBG whole book group and we've really worked on it and I've really, you know, listened to input from others and tried to get the book right, then it will find a reader. And so those some of those rejections are just, you just let go of them. And what is your favorite word? Family. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing all your thoughts about your book. I'm so appreciative. Thank you, Mitzi. This was a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. And as I said, I'm so appreciative of your, of your many years of work on First Draft. If you like today's show with Catherine Ma, author of The Chinese Groove, check out my interview with Chang Ray Lee on his novel, My Year Abroad. We talked about how the body knows when the writing is good, being driven by character, and present and past tense in fiction. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 390 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Mona Simpson, Rebecca Mackay, and Maggie Smith. 
I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.